Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond, brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Lenny Antonelli, and with me in studio today are Marie Bourne, Trina O'Connell and Maria Daly. In this week's show, we look at the world of DIY biology and genetic engineering with Cahal Garvey, Turlock Downs tells us what it's like to be an astrophysicist, and we preview some upcoming summer science events. Ever wanted to do a bit of genetic engineering at home? Cahal Garvey is a DIY biologist who recently held Ireland's first synthetic biology workshop in the Science Gallery in Dublin. He joined us on the phone earlier. Hi Cahal, and welcome to Cybernia, and we have a few questions for you today. Um, the first is, uh, will you be able to tell us about DIY bio, please? Certainly. Um, DIY bio is uh, an emerging hobby where people are treating uh, at more advanced techniques of biology than are traditionally done at home as an accessible hobby that they can start doing as amateurs. Um, and it sort of encompasses biotechnology, which would have been traditionally a big industry or government thing, but taking it down to a level where people can start interacting with life you know, in a, in a, in a, on a very deep level, genetic level. It also covers things like do, do-it-yourself diagnostics, uh, learning more about your own genome by actually exploring it yourself instead of asking someone's permission or uh, getting someone else to do the testing for you. And, uh, you know, more traditional things like, um, uh, what would it be called, Eco- ecology, like, you know, bird watching would have been the traditional example, but taking that a bit deeper and uh, start, starting to use modern techniques of rapidly analysing what sort of species might be around the place using techniques like PCR, which I might discuss in a minute again, um, or, you know, use, using internet-aided and crowdsourced techniques. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, the, the junction of traditional amateur biology, uh, modern technology, and the internet, and all, all the social technologies that that enables as well. Cool. In short, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> and do you want to tell us more about PCR? I believe OpenPCR re- launched recently. Well, OpenPCR is, uh, I mean, the project is over a year old now, but um, they've just shipped out their first test units, and hopefully I'll be receiving mine this week, so fingers crossed. Um, the PCR reaction is a critical reaction when working with DNA that essentially allows you to copy a target bit of DNA that you want to look at and study a bit further uh, out of the whole background. So our genome consists of billions of letters, but out of those letters, we might only want a few sentences of DNA that we really want to look in and analyze. It might be something really important to you, like your cystic fibrosis or breast cancer genes, or it could be something sort of frivolous, like a, uh, a gene that lets you um, smell a certain type of pheromone or taste Brussels sprouts, things like that. Um, and without the PCR reaction, it's extremely difficult to find a in order to study it. The problem with the PCR reaction, which makes it inaccessible, well, one of the main problems has traditionally been that the machines that do the job, kind of like your photocopier, uh, for paper, the machines that copy and paste DNA for you, called PCR machines or thermocyclers, have been thousands of euro or thousands of dollars. Um, but at their most, they're actually pretty basic technology uh, when, you, when you really open them up and look inside. They just change the temperature for you regularly enough uh, according to a set program. And OpenPCR is an open source hardware. Uh, those who know it will love that, those keywords. But if, you don't, if you've never heard of it, it's just a good set of keywords to have in front of anything. It's an open source hardware project to generate a really cheap um, and extremely uh, functional PCR machine. So this thing, it does as much as uh, the ones that I would have used in a commercial lab or in an, uh, sorry, an academic lab where I used to work that would have cost thousands of euro, but would have had very little fee. And this thing now is a totally reprogrammable, versatile machine, which looks really attractive. It's highly mobile and it costs only 512 US dollars. And how, how might people get into doing uh, DOA bio? 
well, whether you're doing PCR or, you know, microbiology or anything else on that scale, um, I'm, you know, really trying to get a community going in Ireland, and I'd be more than happy to guide anyone else in Ireland through getting into the hobby and uh, getting involved at that level. I specialize in genetics and microbiology, and I have a website, indiebiotech.com. However, for the more, the the broader picture of DIY bio, which can, I mean, that's anything to do with biology as a hobby. Um, there's an excellent website and mailing list. You can, achieve, you can reach them both through DIYbio.org. Um, and there's uh, the OpenPCR blog, OpenPCR.org as well. And, uh, I mean, the, the terms citizen science uh, sort of encompass the whole, the whole range of citizen scientific uh, hobbies or amateur efforts or even like, genuine research, which includes DIYbio. And there's a, a great new uh, quarterly magazine called Citizen Science Quarterly, which is available at citizensciencequarterly.com. Um, which is, uh, I, they've published their first issue and they're going into their second now soon and that's a fantastic resource as well for people who are interested in pursuing it further. Hey Carl, how is the idea of um, DIY bio sort of perceived by traditional um, biotechnologists and biology academics? How, is, there, is there any kind of a friction there between the traditional and the open science crowds or is everyone getting along nicely? Well, you know, that, that's, a, I mean, that's a really good question um, and it, it, at the moment it's sort of divided because people, very few people think it's irrelevant and those who do are kind of widely, you know, you could look at their arguments and they're a bit dodgy, like they, they kind of want to pretend that nothing's happening and putting their heads in the sand. But most people are very sharply divided between those who think that it's a fantastic idea and it's the best way to get science literacy out there and encourage science communication. Uh, because it, it, there's always been this issue that science communication has often, it, it's often been, you go to a classroom full of people who are kind of maybe interested and you say, look at how amazing the science that I'm doing is. But then when you leave, you haven't actually encouraged or told people how they can do science themselves. Whereas DIY Bio is very hands-on. It's like, okay, look, here's what you can go home now and do, or come in tomorrow to the community lab and we'll just have a bit of fun doing science. So it's a very engaging thing, and a lot of people are very, uh, they really approve of that. But then you also get, on the other end of the spectrum, people who feel threatened, or people who kind of wanted to remain like a priesthood of biotechnology. And uh, these are the people who you'd you'd see standing up uh, calling for regulation and saying, no, individuals shouldn't be allowed to do this. It's dangerous. It's uh, unpredictable. And, you know, they they don't want regulation of themselves. They don't want regulation of anyone except individuals. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that biotechnology is artificially expensive and it's artificially uh, cloistered and seems way more difficult than it really is. I mean, it is difficult, but it's not impossible for an amateur to get involved, and I think a lot of people feel threatened, so it's, it's very sharp divide down the middle. You're right. I'm just going to quote here from something I read on your website earlier. You say, Biotech can be used to create cheap antibiotics on-site in Africa, to create biofuels from household wastes, and to help us grow more food with less chemicals, water, and land. However, there's little commercial incentive to give us these freedoms. For the best biotech to emerge, individuals and communities must be enabled to engineer life. Can you talk a bit more about, about that? I mean, what I gather you're saying is that um, biotechnology can um, solve many of the world's problems, but there's not necessarily a, a profit incentive for corporations to do it. So therefore, people need to take it into their own hands to learn these, these skills. Well, you know, it's kind of an old... Um it, it, it's an old argument in uh, in people who've been in medical research or medical biotechnology, and it's, I mean it's never been fully substantiated. But when you start thinking this way, it really seems very uh, very pervasive. You sort of wake up and look around and go, "Hang on, here's what the market's doing to us." If you imagine how much money is made on, for example, um, chemotherapy agents that effectively keep people alive without actually curing them. In many cases, I mean, chemotherapy does cure a lot of cancers. Uh, maybe antiretrovirals are a better example when you're talking about HIV. Antiretroviral therapy generally just keeps people alive for a normal lifespan 
but it doesn't cure it. Now, imagine what would happen if the companies that are currently making such an enormous amount of money selling antiretrovirals, and there is infinite demand for them at the moment, were to create a cure for HIV instead. I mean, these companies operate on very narrow margins because they invest all of the money that they make as profit. They don't operate themselves like a household. If HIV were cured tomorrow, the guys making the antiretrovirals would go completely out of business. So they don't want that to happen. And due to the way that drugs are sort of made and then, um, what's the word, licensed for use by the FDA and the, uh, not the the FDA, but the European equivalent, um, means that only the large companies can ever afford to get a drug past testing anyway. So the companies who currently have no incentive to cure the world's worst diseases are the guys who are in the sole position of power to actually do so. Now, I feel that looking at that and looking at, uh, you know, when it comes to issues like um, antibiotics for the poor, I mean, yes, we can send antibiotics out to Africa, but it's very expensive and difficult to do so. It's a distribution problem. Antibiotics need refrigeration, so they're expensive to make, expensive to ship. We need to get them there and then get them down all of these really bad... I mean, when you, you don't, I mean, people don't realize that getting things into an African airport is only the first step. Getting them to the people who need them is extremely challenging as well. By the time the antibiotics get there, it's either cost you an enormous amount of money, which nobody really wants to front up to save people that they don't know in Africa, unfortunately, in real life, um, or, you know, it just doesn't happen. Nobody does it. So antibiotics are, they're always needed and never delivered. Now, the thing is, antibiotics are generally made by bacteria or fungi. That's where they were discovered, and that's where most of them are still made. If you can engineer a standard way that one bacteria that's really easy for anyone in the world to grow can make a variety of different antibiotics, and you could have one for each medicine, you could just ship out a suitcase full of these things to a town, and when that town's got them, they can make more and ship a suitcase to their neighbours, ship a suitcase to their neighbours, and you have one guy in the town who you train up so that he can say, look, this person has X disease. I use this open-source, dirt-cheap PCR machine, which people can practically flog at us, to test what disease this person has, read down the list of what antibiotics work, and grow up some of that antibiotic for tomorrow. And you're talking about being able to annihilate the distribution problem and get antibiotics where they're needed, when they're needed. Antibiotics on demand. Now, that's just when it comes to the medicine example. Biofuels, obviously, I mean, that's a whole different thing, but there is no commercial incentive from the guys who have the power to subsidize and make cheap solar or make cheap biofuels happen tomorrow. They're the oil companies. They don't want that to happen. So, I mean, where there is no commercial incentive, really, it just, it's up to amateurs to do it. And biotech is one of the most sustainable ways to solve some of the world's problems because it's a living planet. If you can come up with a living solution, you're working within the system and not against it. And that's where I see biotech being so, so full of potential. But it, there's this danger that it's just going to end up being another big industry if amateurs don't jump in early. Can you tell us a bit more about this idea of, of citizen science or open science? I mean, as well as sort of DIY biology, what other what other um, sort of activities would fall under this umbrella? I mean, I presume it doesn't just relate to necessarily having like a lab in your in your shed or whatever, but also to the way you know scientific discussion um, takes place. For example, via the internet or, op- or open source journals or blog, rather than necessarily expensive um, peer reviewed paper journals. Um, oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, crowd, crowdsourcing research is, um, there's, there's two definitions of the word citizen science, and one of them is sort of patronizing and it's been more common. It's where, you know, real scientists, capital or capital S, um, get loads of people around the world to help them do their research. But the people around the research are, sorry, the people around the world are acting more like, you know, assistants. Now, that, that's, that's great. And for some types of research, it's essential. I'm not saying it's not, you know, useful. But 
you're not really being a scientist if you just send a little bit of information to someone else to do all the research for you. Um, you're really helping. It's fantastic. But the other definition of citizen science is where you get everyone to actually take active roles in the research. Now, um, there was a fantastic bit of research done uh, with, I think it was vitamin B9, and it got published in Nature Medicine, a very prestigious journal in, uh, in medicine. What, what they did was they got all these people who had their uh, 23andMe genome sequencing results already, so people who had availed of this service, 23andMe, which tells you a lot about your genome. These people had an enormous amount of data about their <laughs> genomes, which most of it like, is irrelevant to you unless you're looking for it. And this guy organized a study where he got people to go out and take a certain type of vitamin B9 supplement um, after getting their blood levels of vitamin, I think it was vitamin B9 now, but after getting their blood levels checked, they took a normal supplement and then checked their blood levels and then stopped taking the normal supplement and start taking a specialized version of the supplement and then check their blood levels. And he was able to show that this particular gene um, called MTHF4, uh, they called it Samuel L. Jackson's favorite gene, um, was tightly associated with whether or not vitamin B9 tablets did anything for you, normal ones, that is. The guy who started the study found that he and several other people in the study with this mutation in this gene could not absorb the normal form and had to take the specialized form. And that had not been known. Now, that's a very engaged sort of research. You're Absolutely. getting all these different people to do uh, their own role in the research. And there, you don't need a lab to do these sort of things. I mean, these people just had their own... Um, their, their own gene sequencing results which cost them maybe a few hundred dollars uh, and they got their doctor to do the blood test. Now, the advantage of this is not only that it makes science easy, but it makes science very trustworthy. There's this big furore over climate gate that drove loads of people to try and, uh, you know, waffle on about how climate change isn't happening and yeah. put their heads back in the sand. And it sort of highlighted that the monolithic model of research where there is a research institute that you're expected to trust um, is very vulnerable to populist kind of, I, I, I won't use the language, but, you know, it, it's very vulnerable to the sort of uh, rhetoric that gets thrown out all over the place by Rupert Murdoch and co. Um, whereas when you are inviting people to take part in research, uh, kind of an aggregate research, and they're going out and they're taking the temperature measurements and they're looking at the historical records and, com and sort of pooling their data and coming up with results showing, actually, yes, the climate's completely out of whack, and it has been for decades now. They can't, ref they can't just say, oh, there's people twisting the results because they can see it themselves. They're doing it. And their friends see that they've done it. And their friends can tell their friends, hey, my friend took part in that study. Actually, climate change is a real issue. So across the board from medicine, climate change, um, you know, all of these different fields of science, which we're expected to just accept and consume, the whole citizen science approach, the involvement of people in actually doing the science really helps people to trust and accept what you know a traditional scientist would have said god you should have just listened to me but that's not how we work we, we like to be involved we like to see what's happening and i think that's what citizen science can do cool that's great um well so we look forward to seeing the next project that you produce for us and <laughs> hopefully we'll it. talk to you soon when that's a success all right thanks very much Cahill. for our latest elevator scientist slot we spoke to astrophysicist turlock downs about how he got interested in science and what life is like in a supercomputer lab and um, what made you study astrophysics? Where did you start? In, when I was in fifth year in school, I kind of really liked biology. But then, and then I, I was kind of zoning in on biochemistry. I thought biochemistry was great. But then I realised that I would have to learn off lots of stuff if I was going to do biochemistry, and I'm useless at learning off stuff. <laughs> on the other hand, with physics, I could understand stuff and not have to learn it off. So I would, I would be able to answer exam questions and whatever without having to learn it off. Now, to be honest, I wasn't great at maths in school until uh, sixth year. And then suddenly in sixth year, maths clicked with me and I did really well in the Leaving Cert. 
I, I hadn't really liked computers. This sounds like I started off disliking everything that I ended up doing. <laughs> but I hadn't really liked computers until I did my final year project. In that final year, cor- or in that final year project, then I had to write a, a computer code to simulate how atoms move when they're bound together. Mm. You were doing bits and pieces of computer programming, but not much. And I hated it. I hated it. I really hated it. But the reason I hated it was because it was the, the programming courses that we had were on programming. They didn't give you a problem to solve with yeah. the programming. So you were just doing stuff like you know sorting words so that they're in alphabetical order and stuff like that and I couldn't care less about that but once it came to a real physics problem I really enjoyed it and then when I when I did my finals or when I was coming up to doing my finals I decided I'd like to do a PhD and a friend of mine was doing his PhD in the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies so I thought I'd go there and talk to them so I registered in Trinity did my PhD in the Institute my PhD was on computational astrophysics basically looking at how stars form so that was really when I first got into astrophysics was actually when I, you know, in terms of my work or my day-to-day stuff, that was during my PhD, but I had always been fascinated by it. I liked cosmology, I liked all the stuff about how the universe came into existence and all that, but I felt that there is probably, it's probably difficult to, um, well, there, were, there, were certain, there are certain philosophical, philosophical aspects of that that I find mm. unsatisfying. As long as you're scientifically rigorous with what you do, yeah, you can be as philosophical as you like about why yeah. you do it. Yeah. Uh, but the scientific process is a really restricted form of philosophy. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's based on logic, and then it's yeah. based on uh, repeatable observations, and that's, that's what it has to be. Mm. So if you then bring the broader philosophy into your scientific work and you stop using logic and you stop <laughs> using repeatable <laughs> observations, which people do, well, very well when people do that, um, uh, then, then you're no longer doing science. And I, uh, you know, Absolutely. I, so I felt, I, and I still do feel, that a lot of the, the perhaps the well-known cosmologists aren't really doing science anymore. So I, I wanted to go into something that was, a, that was more clearly defined as science, but still had that kind of wonder aspect that I yeah. find about astrophysics, everything being big and really far away and incredibly powerful processes at work and really fundamental processes at work, which affect how the sun came into existence, how earth came into existence, how we came into existence, all these things. They're, they're all, they all come from astrophysics, and yet you can still study it very clearly using the scientific method. And so now you're working with supercomputers, and what do you do on a daily basis, or pick a day where you're just doing a lot of um, number crunching, maybe, or something? Uh, at the moment, I'm in a really great position where uh, I'm joint uh, between Dublin City University and the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. So I do my teaching in DCU, um, but I teach a slightly reduced load, and I do my administration in DCU as well, but I have a lot of time to do research. On a typical day, I arrive in, uh, I check whether jobs that I have running on the supercomputers have finished or have outputted data that I can analyse. If they have outputted data, then I start downloading the data. And always when I'm running these jobs, there's a question in my mind. It's either that I want to test a particular setup for the simulation to see whether the code will handle it or whether the code will crash, or I'm actually doing a full production run, in which case I've got lots of really fundamental questions that I want to answer, and that's going to turn into a paper. So when I'm downloading the data, I'm really waiting for it to come down so that I can look at it and see what's happened. And we have various uh, bits of software and and so on, and I've written bits of software as well to analyse that data. And the code is... Uh, really a a code for simulating um, fluid dynamics I suppose, but fluid dynamics where magnetic fields are important and that's really relevant in astrophysics so in particular what I spend my time at the moment running the code for is uh, simulating 
things about how gas and dust move around in regions where we know that star formation takes place. So star formation takes place in things called molecular clouds. And molecular clouds are parts of the interstellar medium that are denser than the rest. So they're denser and they're colder. And because they're denser, it means there's more mass there, which means gravity is stronger, which means stars can form, because stars are ultimately these clouds collapsed under their own gravity. But including lots of physics and, and all this, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a complicated game. Uh, with lots of really interesting effects and really interesting questions to be answered and the, the, the simulations can answer those questions if you can get to run them on powerful enough supercomputers so that you can really include all the physics well enough to get reliable answers. And so we're lucky enough to have uh, lots of time on some of the biggest supercomputers in the world. And so we, we do. You can kind of think, well, you know, let's do something. And, and we probably, this, this, this ought to be what happens when I set all this gas in motion in this way. And then something different happens and you go, oh, well, you know, what on earth is going on there? Um, and that's something that's, that's great because it means that you learn something real that you didn't know before. And, and it, 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 it helps to, to hone your intuition and, uh, and make you a better scientist ultimately. And it's, it's great fun. For this week's Culture Corner, we're talking about a recent show on BBC Radio Scotland and it's the Pioneers Radio Series. It was an interview with Sir Alec Jeffries, the scientist behind DNA fingerprinting, and his discovery is described as a eureka moment that went on to revolutionise the criminal justice system and medical fields. Um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. The, I don't know, it's, there's not a lot of science in it, but there's a lot of history and there's a lot of personal sort of backstory. And it talks about how in September 1984, Jeffries arrived in his lab and he had this X-ray film that he was doing some experiment on and he wasn't looking for DNA fingerprinting, but that's what he found. You guys, you all listen to this and you <laughs> realise that he doesn't actually explain what DNA fingerprinting is and how he actually found it. So that's probably one of the failings of the show. I don't know, I thought he did a good job in sort of making it sound very colourful and personal. Yeah, he, he does describe, you know, what it's kind of, what might inspire to become a scientist. But there wasn't, just from the point of view of, I like lots of science and my yeah, science yeah. programming. And I was just kind of disappointed to not find out exactly which type of DNA fingerprinting he came up with or the sort of, not necessarily the neaty neaty gritty details on it but a kind of rough outline because these things are accessible like so yeah. there, there's no reason why they couldn't have talked about it you see I wouldn't really have a clue whereas you straight away you were like was it PCR what was it and I was like do you know what I don't know and I never even thought of, like I wonder what it was because I just didn't know enough about it so it might be good as a starter sort of podcast but even so you, they could have squeezed a bit more science in it was it seemed to be more a, sh- a show that would you know not necessarily interest someone who wanted to find out about DNA fingerprinting but someone who, you know, wants to find out how to become a geneticist who eventually ends up being profiled on BBC Radio Scotland. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I imagine a pioneer series perhaps might be more aimed at that than than the hardcore exactly. scientist. Yeah, fair enough. It was, very, it was very anecdotal. Like, he talked about these things, like, when he went into the lab that day and he was like, oh my God, I can do DNA fingerprinting. So he started pricking his finger and leaving drops of blood all around the lab and going, I'm recreating a crime scene. So it's very vivid and you're just going, that's exciting. I want to leave drops of blood everywhere and they're not allowed (laughs) and no it's good because he was like at the time they had no idea how dna would survive for how long in what form so they were like drawing the blood and seeing how they could scrape and get dna sequencing from that like i thought that was interesting because again i don't really know much about this so i thought it was really you know cool yeah i thought it gave a good oversight of what sometimes science discoveries are that mm. they are sometimes quite accidental that you might be have an experiment to discover one thing and then you look at something and you see like he saw the patterns 
in the DNA between the mother and the father and the son, that kind of thing. But he, he had never thought of looking at that until he saw it. So it turns out to be amazing and maybe changing the world, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, um, as much as, as as much as we might have some um, critiques for, of the show, ultimately, um, Sir Alec Jeffries did discover a technique that has, has genuinely revolutionised the way crimes are investigated around the world um, in terms of um, identifying victims and perpetrators and so you know he is a significant character <laughs> exactly yeah. I think uh, one yeah. of the things he did mention was um, kind of the what happened maybe that he didn't predict like say the um, the national DNA database and how it can be yeah. not not only used for criminals but also people who just have got arrested yeah, and that, that this is really in England and also how like it can be used to find family members which haven't consented at all just because they're kind of similar to someone who has committed a crime so I thought that was really interesting I didn't even know anything about that before so it's interesting to highlight how it can be used in different ways Genetic profiling is a huge ethical minefield even at the moment because, like, from the point of view of even identifying criminals, holding people's genetic information on hand, who owns the information, it's probably yours. Does someone have a right to look at it? And how Does long someone have a right to judge you based well? on it? Because mm. you can find a lot of information about people's disease predisposition, what genetic links they have with family so someone was adopted they didn't realise they were adopted you go do a paternity test on them they don't like you very much you <laughs> get given out to by someone or you get lots of money because you're a reporter for a bad magazine thing um, and it's quite interesting like so f- for everyone who watched the Obama visit recently everyone said oh they took away his pint glass straight away it was all paranoid and people are like, are oh, you going to clone Obama? But it's not about cloning Obama. It's about finding out what weaknesses he has because that would make him a weaker person well, if we said... Kryptonite. Well, kryptonite, obviously, is a problem. <laughs> but things that might be less commonly known that you might be able to genetically test for in the future, say. So it's a big mm. ethical minefield, so yeah, it's, it's a good point to raise. There's, there's great benefits to DNA profiling as well, stuff like mm. the International HAP Map, which is mapping profiles, not based on complete genomes, but by chopping them up into little fingerprints the way so fingerprint DNA isn't about finding out every single base in your genome bases are the letters say that your genes are written in but about finding kind of chunks that you have in common with other people so you can kind of trace ancestry or trace disease Adrian I just wanted to ask you um, going back to to, to the show um, you I mean the show presented this moment um, when he discovered um you know, DNA fingerprinting as a eureka moment. And this was sort of, I suppose, one of the central ideas of the show is the idea of eureka moments in science. But you seem to have a bit of difficulty with this idea or them sort of playing up this idea. Yeah, I just find from my own experience in, like, in college and research and also from doing a lot of reading, I love reading science stuff, um, background history, biographies. And you find a lot of people, like, the eureka moments aren't quite so blazingly eureka they tend to be this kind of cumulative you've been thinking you've been thinking and the penny drops and lots of other scientists have been thinking as well and making small incremental yeah you read something in someone else's paper and you go oh my goodness maybe that can apply to mine and you know this is how models from economics suddenly start applying to ecological systems and what have you I just found that the eureka was overplayed but that's just my own because a lot of stuff is you build on and if, if you get a really strange looking result that could become a eureka result chances are you've repeated the asset at least three four times to be certain it's not a wonky result because someone dribbled in your 
test tubes. But <laughs> yeah. that, it's an actual real result that you can rely on and then you can go, hey, wow, look at what I've discovered. We could actually talk about this for hours more. I think everybody's really excited about it and they've got very different opinions on how it was presented and the knowledge or lack of knowledge in the podcast. But um, if you want to listen to the full thing, we've got the link on um, our blog. So go there, have a listen. And he does explain what DNA is. There's some, there's some basic science in there. But yeah, have fun. Now, summer tends to be a bit of a quiet time for science events, but there's still a bit going on. Maria, can you tell us what's coming up? Yeah, there's a few things coming on in the end of July and August. So Astronomy Ireland are hosting a public lecture on the next generation of exoplanet surveys by Dr. Playco, who is in the Astrophysics Research Centre in Queen's University, Belfast, on the 8th of August. So for more information, see astronomy.ie. Blackrock Castle Observatory um, are hosting sci-fi film screenings in their state-of-the-art cinema theatre with guided stargazing at 8pm on the last Saturday of every month. See bco.ie for more information or contact 021-435-7917. And the Science Gallery Summer Exhibition Elements is now open. The exhibition explores the beauty of the elements, the design icon that is the periodic table and stirs up some reactions in the atomic kitchen. For more information, see sciencegallery.com. And finally, Heritage Week runs this year from the 20th to the 28th of August. Events hosted nationwide are hugely diverse in subject and many are organised by local communities. In addition, many heritage sites and stately homes will offer free admission or special concessions. See heritageweek.ie for more information. That's it for this week's show, which was brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. Thanks to all our contributors, thanks to Near FM for the use of their studio, and thanks to our producer Gavin. If you want to contact us, you can email us at podcast.cybernia.ie. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash cybernia. You can follow us on Twitter on at cybernia. And of course, you can get all our podcasts on iTunes or at cybernia.ie. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.